we have the opportunity to really embrace our longevity. Booming, the podcast, offers insights and inspirations about how all of us can age successfully, how all of us can boom. My name is Marcus Riley. Welcome to Booming. Kerry O'Brien is an icon of Australian journalism and broadcasting. Renowned for his integrity and intellect, Kerry remains one of our most respected public figures. Now 74 years of age, he lives in the hinterland of northern New South Wales, and in this discussion shares his personal story of his own ageing journey, how he has planned and adapted, older family members who inspired his approach to life, what he learned from some of the world's greatest leaders, and offers insightful commentary on the major social issues of our time, including our ageing population. Please enjoy listening to Mr Kerry O'Brien. Kerry, firstly, let me assure you that the the challenge of interviewing one of the great interviewers is clear and apparent to me, uh, yet the privilege to do so is even greater. So thanks very much for having a conversation with us today. Pleasure, Marcus. It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to start with reflections on your personal influences, and I know you have a a deep respect for your parents, but before we get to them, I know that you've researched extensively into the ancestry of your family, and that's something that many people are interested in and perhaps consider doing. What have you taken from learning more about the earlier generations of your family, and indeed, what prompted you to do it in the first place? Well, what prompted me was uh, was a couple of things. I, I um, had been lucky enough to be invited onto the SPS series, Who Do You Think You Are? Right. Uh, I already had, thanks to my younger brother and others in, a, in the wider family on my mother's side, a reasonable sense of my mother's history and my ancestors on that side of things. Reasonable. Yes. Still with a lot to find out. Uh, but I knew very little about the O'Brien side, and uh, and that was the side that Who Do You Think You Are focused on, and uh, it confirmed some things for me, and it opened up my own reflections on my origins. Right. The really important thing to me out of it all, I think, has been in enhancing my sense of connection to this land, Australia, and I've thought a lot, particularly having spent many years as a journalist reporting on Indigenous issues, uh, on Indigenous injustices, coming to realise the the extent of, of that injustice and the dysfunction that it has inflicted on so many Indigenous Australians so unfairly through that white colonial settlement. I, I've particularly traced the pathway of an ancestor named John Eaton the son of William Eaton and Jane Eisen, who were both English convicts who came to Australia on the second and I think the fourth fleets. So John Eaton was born in about 1813. He, at a very young age, only about 20, he and his wife, who was also the daughter of a convict, took cattle and drove them up through the Liverpool Plains, up through the Hunter Valley, the Liverpool Plains, up through central western New South Wales, over mountain ranges into Queensland. This happened over about 20 years. And they eventually settled on a very big property of 50,000 acres just outside Meribah, and he became one of the pioneers of the Meribah Wide Bay District. So he was industrious, he was entrepreneurial, he was obviously a person of courage and determination. He also was passing through a time in history and places like Myall Creek and other sites of massacres, of Indigenous massacres, 
I haven't been able to pin down that he was at the site of a massacre when it took place or was even nearby, but he passed through My Old Creek just a few months before that massacre. He passed through another spot on the Guida River, again in close proximity to another massacre. And he did have, clearly he had clashes with uh, First Australians at various stages of his life. So what I've reflected on is that he was of his time and his place. According to the white Australians of his time, he was an upstanding citizen and a genuine pioneer. And what I'm trying to do through this is to help others to, to try and sort through truths in my own mind and to try and help some other Australians to come along on this journey of what I hope is a genuine, in the end, a genuine reconciliation and understanding between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians of what that white colonial settlement meant in terms of its impact on First Australians. And, and, and it's an impact that's still being felt today. So, so that, that really has been the most important aspect of my coming to an understanding of my own ancestors and family history. Without trying to get too personal, Kerry, the reflection on what you called your place in this country, is that something that you have come to peace with or is it a journey you're still, still embarking on? Oh, well, I, I think, I think it, it, no, it's something I, it, that's helped me to settle uh, in my own mind right. as to who and what I am. It's not the totality of an explanation, but it is a part of the picture. And I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing for any Australian, you know, new or old, to, to go through because it is, I, I think we are more complete as individuals, the more complete our understanding is of who and what we are. And I think, I think why, why reconciliation is so important from the white side or the non-Indigenous side is that we took this country on the basis that there was nobody here. Indigenous Australians were not even recognised really in any formal or, or, or human rights or legal sense for a century and a half or more. And, you know, I, I have had a life of relative privilege as a result of that white colonial settlement, as a direct result of that white colonial settlement, even though I'm five generations below that pioneer, John Eaton. Sure. And I think it is incumbent on us to, to learn more about Indigenous history that goes back 60,000 years before we arrived, a history that was rich in culture and tradition, that had its own laws, that was its own civil society, that was not uh, an automatic... It was not the civilization that, that we non-Indigenous people came to be taught in schools and in life to the extent that we were. I mean, the education on that front was almost non-existent. Uh, so uh, it's allowed, I think, this whole journey of mine, cliche though journey is, uh, has allowed me, I think, to be much clearer and much more settled in my own life. As you say, there is so much to, to learn and so much should be learned. And just staying with your family for the moment, you you write in your book that your parents, Jack and Lotta, have remained your moral compass right the way through your life. How do you think they really made those values sink in for you? the way they lived their own lives. Uh, I mean, to me, love and respect should go hand in hand. I think it would be very hard to love somebody you didn't respect. And, uh, and although I, I had my moments of being something of a wild child, not a complete renegade, but, but certainly I would have been a handful in many ways. 
and I had frequent clashes with my father in particular. Uh, but nonetheless, I had deep love for them both, and, and my respect levels grew the wider my own view of the world became. And yep. so the older I got, the more I was able to compare my parents with the other human beings I was coming yep. into contact with. And I think they were wonderful role models. They, they both lived, I think, an ethical and moral life. Uh, but neither, neither was a carper or a lecturer on those kinds of issues. They, they, they lived what they, what they believed. And they lived much of their life through periods of war, both uh, world wars and the Depression. How do you think that shaped the way they viewed the world and perhaps the way they chose to live their own lives? Well, it it's kind of rolls off the tongue very easily, doesn't it? Two world wars and a depression. That all came uh, within 30 years, really. And, uh, and so that had a huge impact uh, on the people who lived through it. And in the case of... I mean, Mum was something of a free spirit... She was a traditional housewife, as was her lot in those times, uh, but she was a free spirit within that who, who, whose mind was always expanding through her reading uh, and, and who loved uh, that kind of stimulation. Her range of reading, you know, I mean, she was reading... I remember I, I came to really enjoy Patrick White myself and I know a lot of other people sort of shrugged their shoulders and so they didn't enjoy him, but my mother was reading Patrick White when I was a young kid and Dostoevsky and, and right. a whole range, a whole broad range of, uh, of literature, you know, sitting in her house at Tennyson in Brisbane surrounded by the drudge, fairly, fairly kind of humble dwelling that we lived in, uh, surrounded by the drudge of, uh, the, the, that was made up so much of her life. She was, you might say she was not a natural housewife. <laughs> And I'm looking looking back. I'm in utter sympathy with her. But, but she had her intellectual outlets. Obviously, she which... had she had her intellectual outlets. So that that influenced me. And and dad dad could have pursued uh, a career that would have been far more lucrative to him if he had not felt a a kind of dedication to the Martyr Hospital and and the Catholic Church and the nuns who ran the Martyr. Um, and so they were both they were both quite religious. Uh, without having it dominate their lives completely, and uh, and that influenced me through my childhood. Um, it was something that I moved away from later in life, but but I certainly respected their right to have that faith. Uh, to, to come back to your question, uh, so I say, Mum was a free spirit. Uh, Dad, I think, planned and ran his life much more conservatively as a result of the Depression particularly, but I'm sure also both world wars. I mean, that was, that was an extraordinary period of upheaval. And what, and what came out of that was the nuclear era. The world plunged immediately out of World War II into the Cold War, which then lasted for another uh, 45 years or more. Um, so those things did, I mean, I, I don't know to what extent Dad's temperament might have been um, conservative otherwise in terms of uh, I mean they didn't they didn't buy their first house until I was 12 dad didn't get his first car until he was 50 so he didn't even have a driver's license until he was 50 years of age those were signs I think of how that world war and depression era affected his life and whether it kind of caused me to go a little the other way but I, I suppose I tended to want to take risks and learn more about the world, you know, discover a wider world. And talking about discovering a wider world, 
uh, and, and looking at people, other people who've had an impact on, on you. You went from regional Queensland to spending time with uh, some of the most prominent figures in, in modern times and indeed spending personal time, in-depth time with, with such people. Are there particular individuals who did have a, a positive impact on you or had a, an influence in the way you started to view the world and, and look at your own life? Oh, my God, that is a huge question, you know. That's a huge question. There are a lot of people who've had an influence on me and there are people who I singled out as as mentors who I felt I could learn from. And if there was one, and I'm not, not even sure why, whether it was pure instinct or whether somebody had once said to me, Kerry, you know, you can, you can actually take the odd shortcut or you can your life might be less painful if you can learn through the mistakes of others. And I always remember as a kid, my grandmother used to say periodically, you can't put a, an old head on young shoulders. Now, a lot of that was certainly true for me. But in this one sense, I did instinctively look for mentors. Once I had got into journalism and became so excited by it and realised that that was what I wanted to do with my working life, I had this instinctive recognition of people who I might learn from. And that was from my cadetship days at Channel 9 in Brisbane in the mid-60s, pretty much all the way through. There's always somebody you can learn from. Paul Keating, when I did a series of interviews with him about his life and looking particularly at, at his leadership, what, what it was that made him a leader. And he talked about this as distilled wisdom. Going to people, successful people, in a whole range of areas, not just successful financially or successful in careers, but people who were successful in their lives, at a time when he said they had this distilled wisdom. And that's what he did. And and in a sense, in a sense, that's what I did instinctively. And are there particular great minds that, that you encountered that still have that impact on you and, and that you would point to as being particularly at, at a high level and, and a level that is, is worthy of you know, respect and having influence? When I went to the ABC, particularly in journalism, and worked for a daily current affairs program, which was still really in its infancy, called uh, This Day Tonight. It was the first daily current affairs program in Australian television. And I found myself with a bunch of extremely talented people who were passionate about their craft. And we were in an environment where the rules were being made up as we went along. It was very innovative. We had no previous model for it in Australia. And the thing that absolutely um, I latched onto and that I really enjoyed the most out of it all was the collegiate nature of how we operated. People pitched in and helped each other. People talked over each other's stories. And we were happy. I was certainly happy always to listen to the advice or the suggestions of others. It was a genuinely collaborative process. And even though we were competitive, we were competitive in a good way and in a good-humoured way. And so that was one big lesson for me. And I've always appreciated and enjoyed that kind of collegiate role ever since. And, and I enjoy, I do enjoy working collaboratively with people I, I respect and have a, a kind of um, a sense of connection to or whose work I might respect in particular ways. That's one. When I went to work for Gough Whitlam, I think uh, Gough Whitlam was, uh, was in the last stages of his political career. It was a wonderful opportunity for me to see politics practised from the inside with, I think, one of the great political leadership figures this country has seen. And I know there's controversy around that. And Goff was far from perfect. A big man with big flaws, but big ideas, big brain, great courage. 
and great insights in particular ways who changed the political face of this country and in some ways the social face of this country in ways that we still enjoy. What I learned from Gough was to look at the whole picture, to see the mistakes as well as the inspirations, to reflect on and come to understand how the political process worked, not just through his eyes, but the eyes of others, some of whom became the core of one of the most productive periods in Australian political history, which was the Hawke-Keating years of significant social and economic reforms. And what I was learning and what I've continued to learn right through my life is that life is not black and white. Some people love to paint it that way. Black and white, good and bad, or good and evil, right and wrong. Uh, What my journalism has absolutely cemented in me is that life is full of shades of grey. And that the more we come to understand that, the more we will have a better understanding of life full stop of human nature in all its glory and all its flaws, an understanding of the nature of compromise and what acceptable compromise is compared to unacceptable, how uh, you know there is such a thing as acceptable pragmatism and then there is unacceptable pragmatism depending on your principles, uh, and that these things are cornerstones of democracy. So in that sense, that time with Gough and then when I stayed on with the Labor opposition for another couple of years... Those were times of great learning for me too, which, which when I put that alongside all of the other things I've learned over the years in journalism, the, the total has been, has been profoundly influential on me. Um, interviewing Nelson Mandela. When you interview somebody like a Mandela, you're reflecting on their lives, you're reflecting on what it is about them that is appealing. In his case, his greatness, because to my mind, he remains the great leadership figure of my lifetime and certainly one of the most inspirational political figures in history. When you look at the the darkness of the apartheid era that he led South Africa out of. So you you reflect on what it is that is at the core of Mandela's leadership. And I'm not suggesting that I automatically apply those things to my own life, but you do come to a better understanding of what might be uh, an abstract, like what is leadership, what is greatness, what is nobility? What is what is at the core of compassion? You know, is there is there a compassion that makes you weak? Is there what is the compassion that makes you strong? Um, I th- whether I would have naturally been a reflective person, or whether I became more reflective simply because of the craft that I practiced, which is journalism, I don't know. But um, but I think I think if you are analysing, you know, a journalist chronicles the times of their life which become the history of those times and so uh, if you're not reflecting as you analyse the events of your time then you can't be a very good journalist. Speaking of that craft your industry over the last couple of decades has perhaps been one of the most impacted through technology through political change yet through that period you've not just managed to stay relevant but indeed excel why do you think you've done that? Has it been adapting on the run? Has there been conscious planning at different points along the way? What do you point to? It's interesting, really, because when I look back on it, I realise just how rapid the change process was and how many milestone moments of that change and that, that digital revolution has been. 
in the mid-60s when I started in a little television newsroom in Brisbane, we would be waiting up to three days for pictures to arrive from other parts of the world with the big stories of those those times, like Kennedy's assassination, like, and that was a little bit before I started, but that kind of thing, like the big battles of Vietnam. It was the pre-satellite age. And to go from there to a point where you could upload material onto a satellite uh, somewhere in the northern hemisphere and show it uh, in Australia three quarters of a second later, that had happened maybe 12 years after I started. Uh, and then it got to a point where in the Gulf War, which I think was about 91, 92, and Peter Arnett, I'll never forget, who was a, a foreign correspondent for CNN in CNN's very early days. And uh, he was reporting, not just from behind enemy lines, but on, a, on the roof of a building in Baghdad as American smart bombs were raining down on the city trying to find Saddam Hussein. And he was reporting it live back to the rest of the world. And then in 2003, a whole army of journalists was travelling embedded with the American and British troops when they invaded Iraq, in, uh, that's 2003, and in Baghdad there were hundreds of foreign correspondents reporting live as the bombs were dropping and the casualties were mounting. And those are just a couple of illustrations of, of the kind of change which has impacted enormously. And, and so without going too much into, the, into what those changes are, I've kind of rolled with those changes, as have all of my colleagues, simply because you had to. I wasn't particularly far-sighted about it. It was just when we were working with film, um, the quality and the technology of film kept improving almost, you know, certainly year by year. And then and, and it became much more the video age. And then it became the digital age where you didn't need either video or film. You'd just have a little capsule in your, in your camera. The cameras got smaller. And the flexibility that was available to you was just stunning. But uh, what I also learned about that was that, that there's always a downside, and the upside might outdo the downside, but we should never forget the downside. And part of the downside is that I think we've got the speed of news coverage, but the, but the quality, I think, has declined because we get so caught up with the speed. And then, of course, you get 24-hour news and, uh, and, and you get the entire economic model of news gathering uh, is seriously disrupted by technology and newspapers across Australia, across America, across Britain, across Europe, uh, in some instances are closing almost daily. You know, I mean, the, the casualty rate is just extraordinary. Newsrooms are a fraction of the size they once were, and a lot of the age and experience has gone out of their newsrooms because that's, a, that's the expensive end of wages. I think I learnt to adapt simply because I had to, and a lot of it was exciting. A lot of it was exciting, and so you expanded into the opportunities. Did you not also have points where you were casting your eye forward, whether it was uh, moving to a different phase of your career or positioning yourself for different sorts of opportunities or, again, having to perhaps uh, update your, your skills and, and way of doing things? It wasn't... I think the updating happened almost automatically. I mean, if new editing processes came in... I mean, I wasn't an editor. In television, there are many people in the chain. So in our immediate chain, there would be... Uh, a cameraman and a sound recordist who would go out with a reporter and or a producer, uh, it would come back in and it would be edited. Uh, and then the various other things would happen that would actually get it to air. So when I was going out in my 7.30 period, when I was going out and doing interviews, um, I'd come back and I'd be involved in the editing process 
in the sense it was important for me to understand the new technology in that regard so I could understand what was possible and what was still limiting. You weren't just learning to adapt in the terms of those things you were working closest with. I mean, at 7.30 and at late line before that, uh, 80% of my work was inside a studio. Uh, but the satellite possibilities, the adaptation of, of studio teams, the, the start of robotic cameras, uh, again, seeing the actual human numbers declining in the chain. I was always fighting in those years for a balance of making the best of the new technology and surrendering as little as we could. So you, you introduce robotic cameras and you take the human element out, you're taking some of the imagination out in terms of shot angles, in terms of the possibilities of, what, of lighting, the quality of lighting. So there was always a kind of battle going on at our level about, about striking the best compromise between the good and the bad of those things. And you've transitioned again in recent years if you, as you have stepped away from your major television roles, as you seemingly have changed gears a little bit. And you've written about the link between work and sense of self-worth. How are you continuing to maintain purpose in this different phase of your life? There's been an element that's been planned and there's been a, a strong element of chance. I mean, the, the, the sort of sheet anchor that I had when I decided to walk away from 7.30 after 15 years in that chair, I was 65 years of age. That was only a nominal element. It just happened to kind of coincide with what once, once was a traditional retirement thing. I wasn't, certainly wasn't thinking of retirement as such. I was thinking much more about changing pace, changing what I'd be doing, giving myself more time, I hoped, for reflection. What I found... Uh, when we moved up to Byron Bay from Sydney, that is my wife and I and our then uh, 15-year-old daughter, um, was that it was, it was not going to be easy to change from a structured working life to an unstructured or much less structured working life. So I, I, I took on the anchoring of Four Corners as my sort of sheet anchor, but that was only one to two days a week. And so that was the kind of, that was the core thing in terms of keeping a foot in television and expanding out from there. But, but by the t between when I announced that I was leaving 7.30 around September of 2010 and when I actually finished that year, this idea that I had for a year where I could be spending a lot of time reflecting on what I actually wanted to do was completely taken up. My diary was full of all the things I'd said yes to and it was all ad hoc and that was a really tough lesson. And uh, I ran into a musician up here uh, who had spent the first 20 years of his life in what was an unstructured life, the life of a kind of semi-nomadic musician who was quite successful and earning a good income and running a reasonable career, but it was completely unstructured. And he changed after 20 years and became a music teacher in a high school up here uh, in, in the Byron area. And... Uh, and had to get used to a structured existence. And he told me, I met him in, the, in our first month here, he said, you're going to find the opposite. And he was absolutely right. And I still haven't entirely adapted. I just want to come back to a couple of things you just said there, Kerry, because they're, they're key issues for the majority of people as they look towards their potential retirement phase or, or beyond. And you did mention that you planned. What, what was the prompt or trigger for you to, to make that plan and develop your options for this next phase of your life? Well, uh, part of it was Groundhog Day. I'd been sitting in a studio through six years of late line, late line 
and 15 years of 7.30, and they were both quite demanding jobs, and, and focusing substantially on political interviews, and that was the kind of Groundhog Day element politicians had reached a point in their own evolution, for want of a better word, uh, where, where it seemed the concept of answering questions genuinely in interviews had somehow evaporated. Was that a bit of not so much what you were doing, but who you were doing it with? It was both. It was both. It was like uh, the kind of the prevailing wisdom of the time in politics was uh, always uh, try to use um, um, interview opportunities first and foremost to get your message out, whatever that might be, regardless of the questions or the reason that you've been approached and invited onto a program to do an interview in the first place. And my role I always saw as acting on behalf of the public. Uh, so really I was, I was the kind of intermediary between the public and the politicians and in disrespecting me, the politicians were disre- disrespecting the public. I just got sick of it, uh, to be honest. And, uh, and so that was a significant factor. It coincided with my wife, who's 13 years younger than me, feeling much the same. She was a journalist writing a weekly column uh, for the Herald in Sydney. Um, she was feeling her own groundhog uh, circumstance. And, uh, and we'd always had in the back of our minds that at a certain point we would, we would try a different lifestyle somewhere in regional Australia and we particularly liked this area and saw it as having a lot of depth, a lot of diversity, a lot of very interesting, imaginative and, 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 um, and creative people. Uh, and, uh, and in a way that was more important to us than the, the, than the, the beauty of the landscape, which indeed is stunning. Um, so... That was the kind of that was the sort of broad thing, and uh, and I did do a couple of. I mean, I, for instance, I took on, uh, I, I persuaded the ABC to do a co-production with my small media company uh, on a series of interviews with Paul Keating, which became a kind of electronic uh, um, bio, biography, really, um, um, and and uh, I then converted that to a book. It expanded on it and, and wrote it. And that then led me to consider writing my own memoir, which I'd held at bay for a long time. And, uh, and in, had I stayed in Sydney, I'd, I'd never have done that. I've done the Keating series. I may well have done the Keating book, but I may never have done the memoir. Sure. Um, it was important to me to, to change the scene, change the location. We were moving away from... Most of our children, um, I've got six children from two marriages. My wife Sue and I have three. Um, and uh, so it was, it was a big step in, in personal terms, but it was also important to both of us, and I think we're probably better people for it. And the, the prioritisation that you and, and Sue obviously went through a process to develop those priorities, identify what was of importance to you both, is just so crucial to people getting that planning right. So thank you for, for oh, sharing yeah. that insight. Trial and error, believe me, Marcus. <laughs> Kerry, has it been more difficult for you at times to make those big decisions given you are in the public eye? Oh, I think, um, look, there are a number of things to say about being in the public eye, and one of them is you don't, you don't realise what you're, what you're going to lose until you've lost it, and that is your anonymity. Um, I, I respect people's desire or right to come up to a person who is in the public eye if they like their work, and, and they want to just say, look, thanks for the work, or I really love the way you did fill in the gap. But, um, but there is an intrusive side to it, and uh, um, I think it does have, not, not universally uh, and possibly in different ways depending on the vulnerabilities of a child, but I, I do think 
that the children of parents who are in the public eye find it harder to lead what you might call a normal life. And so th- there are costs to that. And, and I had hoped, to be honest, that in, in moving away from that kind of mainstream media connection that I had, that my profile would sink a little and I would be very happy to be, re- be able to reclaim anonymity, to be honest. I was going to ask you how, it, how you found it going, that other way where you went from being in our lounge rooms every day to, to being more removed from the public eye, but has that been a transition to, to manage? Well, it's, not, it's not one that I... I don't think I had trouble adapting. It wasn't like... I suspect that my circumstance was nothing like that of, a, of an Ian Thorpe or a, a kind of entertainer, a performer or a, an athlete who, who not only is in the public eye but is sort of many of them who've achieved hero status and then find it very hard to adapt afterwards. I, I think <clears throat> this was a move waiting to happen. I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're a hero in many households in Australia, Kerry. Oh, so. Well, I, I think it's, a very, <laughs> I think it's a, a very ethereal thing anyway. But, but um, I haven't missed television, I have to say. I've missed, um, I missed, I've missed some of the, that kind of collegiate stuff because my work is less collegiate now. In fact, writing a book is extremely solitary. But I haven't missed being on television. And although I play with ideas of what I think could be a good series, smaller medium, um, I have shrunk from actually going to the ABC or anybody else and saying, look, I've got this great idea. I did it with Keating. I did it with the Clive James interview. Um, but um, but I've sort of shrunk from doing it. I'm, and I may yet, but I'm not rushing to, believe me. And, uh, and But I've been a bit puzzled that Every now and then I'll stick my head up on something and, and it kind of keeps the, it keeps the profile alive more than I'd thought it would. Right. And uh, uh, it doesn't stop me fitting in to this community, um, but, uh, but I still miss anonymity. Kerry, you've called for a public inquiry into the future of work. How do you view that in relation to older people in the workforce and I guess some observations about how society is is viewing people as they as they grow older. I I, I think that uh, the future of work is one of the huge issues that we face. I mean, if you if you move away from the kind of geopolitical world and those sort of big, uh, are we going to avoid a world war between the United States as it declines and China as it rises? If you move away from those kinds of questions and you look at the big social questions that dominate our lives, and again other than climate change, which is just a massive issue that we are failing to, to, to address. Um, I think the future of work is right in the front of that. And, you know, there are people who are predicting, and they're mostly in the tech industry, and many of them will tell you uh, it's all going to be grand. We're going to create more jobs than we lose, and it's all going to be wonderful, uh, all the way through to those who say it's going to be a complete disaster. And the truth, as, as in most cases, is probably somewhere in the middle but I think it is inevitable from everything I've read and the people I've spoken to uh, that, uh, that, that work time will shrink for most people. And, and there is a serious risk of greater and greater inequity in the spread of jobs, those who have them and those who don't, those who, who have the, the sort of high-paying, high-yield jobs, which, which, which kind of gives them a control, if you like, against those who find themselves with an enormous amount of time on their hands and fewer assets and less income to actually make something of that leisure time that they have through no fault of their own or no 
actions of their own. And I just think it's, uh, it is... Um, so the class divide you're, you're talking oh, to there? That we already have a class divide in this privileged country where there are 3 million people living under the poverty line, including 770,000 children. And we, we, we are, uh, it seems to me that we are losing that fight now. And, uh, and, and how, you know, third, ge- third generation children um, where there's been no job in the family for three generations, how do they get out of that cycle? A handful will, many of them won't, and society will hold them accountable and blame them for those failures. Uh, so I, I don't think we are responsive enough or aware enough of the problems we have now, let alone the problems that are looming. And, and it's not enough. Um, to just accept that there isn't a clear picture and that we have to wait to find out. I think we should be bringing the public along on an ongoing debate so that there is an education uh, for all of us as well as an awareness amongst policymakers of the kinds of things they need to be thinking of now as possible solutions for 10 years' time and 20 years' time before it's too late. And we end up with with uh, a smaller number of of powerful haves, powerful and privileged haves, and a greater number uh, of 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 the have-nots who have no power, little or no power. That is not that is not a recipe for a healthy society. And and you know one of the outcomes of that picture will be the few living with wealth behind big walls in gated communities with with private security forces to keep them safe from the have-nots. That public discourse you, you've just highlighted, uh, totally agree with the need for that. What's your current observation of the public discourse in relation to the ageing of our population and how can that be enhanced so that we are better engaging with older people as well as better empowering people as they as they age? I, th- I think one of the failures of public debate and one of the reasons that democracy is failing uh, and that people's respect for democracy is declining is because the questions are too big. They're too big uh, for the politicians themselves, let alone for the public. And so I think many people, rather than trying to grapple with these issues, sort of pull the curtains down and just try to cope within their own lives. But I think the issue of our increasingly ageing population and how we're dealing with it now, again, let alone how we deal with it in the future, I think that is an almost overwhelming problem. Uh, You know, politicians will say, well, obviously people would prefer to age in their own homes, so we'll plan for that. Uh, And then you check it out a couple of years later and you find that that while a number of people have been uh, evaluated through the welfare system as qualifying uh, for assistance in their home of one sort or another for services to come to them and be at least subsidised by government uh, and that the demand for those services is way beyond the uh, the scope of the system to provide them. And uh, and so when, when the Aged Care Royal Commission says that there are at least 110 or 120,000 homes where this applies, the response of the government is to is to fund 10,000 of them. Uh, and that is just one small illustration of a much bigger problem. You know, already there is this kind of tradition in, in the history of democracies like ours. We do not value those people who provide our essential services. We don't really value our police. We don't really value our teachers. We don't really value our nurses. And, and as the aged care industry has grown, we certainly don't value the workers in aged care because their remuneration is appalling. 
Um, um, the system, it seems to me, uh, too easily uh, takes people uh, who, who are not properly qualified for the kinds of services that they're expected to provide in many cases, uh, and that the response to that challenge has been inadequate, both by government and within the aged care system. Um, we don't respect old people enough. You look at societies like, uh, like, like Asian societies, uh, where the aged command a level of respect that often they don't command, and I'm talking broadly now in, in this country. Uh, in individual cases, of course, it's myriad. There are many, many yes. uh, children who are prepared to assist their parents in old age uh, as, as best they possibly can. But, but communally, we are failing. We're failing our poor. We're failing our aged. And all of these things are building up to a, to a, to a, to a to, to, we are heading for a society which is going to be a failed society if we cannot rise to these challenges. And then you put climate change alongside that. You put our incapacity as a nation to reconcile itself between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. These are endemic issues. Uh, and, 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 and there is a commonality in them. It's a failure of policy and it's a failure of leadership. In, gov- in all the levels of government. Kerry, I want to come to a, a quote from your book which really stood out to me. Being real happens over a long period of time. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, I, th- I think that we kind of grow into our skins and we grow into who we are over time. You know, you, I don't think you're born with much of a personality. <clears throat> you start to smile, you open your eyes, you, you start to... Uh, activate your your emotions. You you start you certainly start to cry very young, but you don't really you develop your personality over a much longer period. I mean, there might be genetic elements, but we are adding to those genetic elements as we grow and as our experience of the world grows, and the wider our eyes, um, the greater our capacity to listen, uh, and. Um, and and our capacity for thought, you know, and to process those things, you you grow into yourself, and maybe you don't have much self awareness when you're young, uh, and some people take a long time <laughs> for their self awareness uh, to develop, and there are some who seem destined never to have self awareness. But uh, but I think it's you know it is like the like the raggedy old horse in the corner you know and he's he's a bit lop-eared and and he's lost a bit here and a bit of bit there, but he's been loved, and uh, and has loved, you know metaphorically in the in the in the tale, um, and and it is through those kind of richer life and 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 through melancholy, and through sadness and through tragedy we learn from all of those things and we become who we are, through all of those things. So that's what I mean by it. And, and uh, somebody actually sent that to me as a quote um, uh, when I'd retired. And it quite moved me uh, because it struck a real chord for me and it, and it actually um, made me feel a bit better about myself in a way. And I think those things are important to actually to learn to, learn to respect ourselves and regard ourselves maybe better than we sometimes do. You perhaps just answer the question I was going to ask as you were talking, that given that, that sense that we do get real over a long period of time, does that give you a sense of positivity, a sense of confidence about our real old age, our later life, that 
we are going to continue to, to develop because I think one of the things, one of the aspects of getting older that we need to better promote and understand is that we can renew our thinking, we can retrain our brain, if you like, to be more open. So our, whether it's our personality, our outlook on life can continue and should continue to evolve as we get older. We, we can retrain our brain in, in a practical sense, it seems, um, um, to, to kind of hold back the, the processes of ageing in a sense with the uh, <coughs> decline of our synapses and so on. Um, but I don't think, you're, I don't think you're, you're retraining the person. Uh, maybe you are. Uh, no, I, I, I said to my wife just the other day that, uh, that I suppose that the, the frustration I feel from time to time now is that I've, I feel I've just reached the stage at the age of 74 where I actually really do have a level of understanding about life and about humanity to actually begin to say things that have a little bit of wisdom in them and that might be of use to other people. And yet here I am, you know, in, in the kind of, uh, I hope it's not quite the twilight of my life, but, you know, 74 has a certain, has a, <laughs> has a certain um, um, uh, inevitability about it. And, uh, and, and you are, you know, no matter what efforts you've made, and I've made some efforts, but I, I haven't been the exemplary exerciser. I haven't been the exemplary dieter. Um, but I've, I've, I've lived reasonably, a reasonably healthy life. Uh, but, but you do decline, you know, despite your best efforts. There is an inevitability about that decline. We might have long, greater longevity and we might be bringing a greater quality of life to those later years. But there is an inevitability about your capacities. So you've got this kind of conundrum that on the one hand, um, uh, having lived the life I had and, have, and having had more than 50 years as a, as a kind of ringside observer to life and to history, and that that brings a certain knowledge base which might allow me to be of real use in society in particular ways that I have not necessarily been able to. At the same time, my scope to do that is diminishing. Uh, so you, you do what you can. And, and I think it, it, it is important to me now to plan these years that are left to me better than perhaps I have since I walked away from the ABC. I've got to be more efficient about giving myself proper time to think properly about those things I really want to do that will be important to me over these next few years while I've still got the capacity to do them. That is such good advice. And given what you've said, that can happen with a degree of confidence as far as how you look forward, how you plan and, and what you weigh up. Kerry, I want to move to a series of more rapid fire questions for, for your responses, please. What concerns you about your ageing? Uh, just what I just said, uh, losing the capacity or, or um, I mean, to one degree or another, everyone of my age uh, is finding that or has found or will find um, that you're reaching more into your memories for things. Uh, you, you can have wonderful clarity on some things and, uh, and murkiness on others. Uh, our minds uh, are a wonderful thing. Uh, and it's like this giant kind of uh, computer storage system in terms of memory. Uh, it's just that the access to it is not as easy as it might be accessing Google. It's a bit Google. denied sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not quite as simple as accessing Google or as consistent. Um, I think um, it's, it's important for me to keep reading. It's important for me to keep switching my brain on. It's important for me, even though, in a sense, 
I think I've become less social than I used to be. I think I've become less of an extrovert and a little more of an introvert. I, re- I, re- I, I need my kind of privacy more than I once did. I need my time in the quiet of our home and within our little small circle than I used to. Um, so those things are important. Um, it's, and at the same time, you know, there are, there are things embedded in you in the way you've lived your life that you don't easily stop doing. It's not easy necessarily to, to change the habits of a lifetime. Sure. On the other side of the coin, what gives you confidence about ageing? Uh, the fact that at 74, I'm still very active. Uh, I've still certainly got the ambition to keep doing things. My curiosity is as strong as it ever was. I think that is such a natural thing in me and it probably is there in all of us at the start of life. And those of us who have that curiosity fed from an early life and encouraged from an early life are the lucky ones because I think curiosity is at the core of everything, absolutely at the core of everything. How else do you keep learning? And you keep learning by keeping asking the questions. And whether you're asking, whether you're asking the great minds by looking at their work, whether you're endlessly travelling on Google to this kind of, I mean, for all its um, it, the criticisms of the Googles and the Facebooks and others, I mean, uh, the kind of our capacity for research is so profoundly widened uh, than it once was. I reckon the two books I've written each of which was 800 pages, each of which probably took me the best part of two years. They probably would have taken four if I'd been writing them 20 years ago. Uh, So there are these great tools on hand if we teach ourselves how to use them wisely. Uh, And that's, that's, I think, a part of our challenge, how we we keep the drudge at the door, the dross at the door to our brains and uh, and 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 leave uh, as much room open to learning more, to building more context and understanding into what we're doing and why and so on. Lifelong learning is so important to our health and well-being. But it can so quickly and easily become a bloody cliche, you know. Sure. And, and the importance of any message about lifelong learning, uh, I think, has to be in 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 the description. You know, why? Why is lifelong learning important? Partly it is about being able to adapt to change in the workplace and becoming more adaptable in our lives so that so that as the change is forced on us, that we our capacity to adapt to it becomes more natural than it has in the past. I, I think there's an enormous fatigue in the world today uh, in terms of change, and that is that's something else I tried to tackle in the memoir. Yes. Having watched this history over 50-something years, that uh, that I think that there has never been a period of such intense change as this. Sure, there have been high impact moments in society, like the industrial Revo- the first industrial revolution, and so on. But that was something. Yes, it was dramatic. But then there was a long period between this development and that development. And that developed. You wake up in a morning and something news happened. You wake up three days later and something news happened again. And for the capacity for people to plan for the next stage of the digital revolution. Uh, I think is very limited and we can be overwhelmed by that Um, so learning you know the lifelong learning thing terribly important not being afraid of change and and 
being and constantly working out how to make that change work for us rather than be in, too intimidated by it. Learning how to weed out those parts of the change, those things that are being offered, uh, you know, the endless marketers and all the rest of it, the kind of uh, the marketing tools of, a, of an iPhone, of, of, of Apple, where you suddenly find yourself, you know, if, if you buy this, you need that, and then you need that, and then, of course, you've You're got down to a rabbit hole pretty quickly. You, you know, and, and, and so these things are all very disorienting for people. And, and, uh, and uh, I mean, in a sense, I've been lucky that I've been in an industry of constant change virtually my whole career, but there'd be people who might have been in traditional jobs that had change, of course, but not at that rate and at that level and have reached a certain age where they feel overwhelmed by it. But that comes back to the story about your mum, who was a, in a traditional housewife role, yet she sought these external stimulations through her reading and, and other yeah. cultural pursuits. And that's a great lesson for all of us who might be in more, uh, air quotes, mundane sort of role, that there are opportunities for us to still feel that learning, to feel our sense of purpose. But, you, but you, one of the questions you asked earlier, um, another aspect of this whole business about adapting as we age and continuing to work, Society has not yet learnt the value of older people who have had a lifetime of work, who do reach their 60s. In some cases, it's only their 50s when they've been redundant and their industry has disappeared or their jobs, their traditional jobs have disappeared, who are then destined uh, never to work in a kind of structured workforce again because they are not respected, because there would be... Uh, employers see them as on the scrap heap. They are not respecting the the experiences that older people can bring to new jobs if they are properly prepared for those jobs. Uh, you know, the kind of mentoring possibilities, the mentoring possibilities I think are unlimited and just not understood. There are huge veins of gold out there um, waiting to be properly tapped waiting for for employers and organisations that employ small, medium and large to actually wake up to what is available to them. And, uh, and, and this is, again, it's a failure of government and a failure of leadership. That the, you know, it's one thing for, for, a, for a government to say, uh, sorry, we're going to up the retirement age from 65 to 67, then we're going to lift it up to 69, then we're going to lift it up to 70, and you'll be able to keep working. Well, many won't. Because the people who've got the job or who might have the capacity to provide the jobs are not respecting them. It's a sad reality, absolutely. It is, and it's a you know it's another symptom of our incapacity to meet these challenges. Kerry, a final question: What would you tell the fifty-year-old you as to how they look forward over the decades to come? Um, look, I think it's not even just a fifty-year-old; it's a it's the forty-year-old and the thirty-year-old. I mean, I've got thirty-ish uh, kids who I'm trying to. Uh, to to open up, not to be obsessed by their later years, not to be obsessed about planning for something that's 30 or 40 years hence, but to be conscious of that because they almost certainly are going to live longer. Um, they will want to be, be able to have a capacity to enjoy their lives as they live longer. There's not much point living to 80 or 90 if you're leading a miserable existence, either because your, your health has gone... Uh, because you haven't looked after yourself earlier and prepared yourself in that sense for this longer life, 
or you've got no capacity to work and you've lost the capacity for self-respect and any sense of being respected in your community. So without obsessing about those things, I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'd be hoping that my younger me today would, uh, would be conscious of those things and planning accordingly. Not obsessively, but having it as a part of the grand plan. To the extent that we can, we do plan our careers. I've made particular choices at stages of my life. Do I work in newspapers? Do I work in television? Do I work in the field? Do I work at a desk in a studio? We're making those kinds of decisions all the time. People are changing their jobs much more frequently than they once did. They're changing careers more frequently than they once did. I, I think that, that, the, that, that the, the later part of our life, be it 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I think we, we have to learn, the younger me has to learn to have these, uh, these aspects as a part of the equation and that they're always a part of the planning, not obsessively, but that they are a part of it. There couldn't be better advice to, to finish on. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on or talk about? No, I'm all talked out, Marcus. <laughs> Kerry, it's been an absolute privilege. Thank you for sharing your insight and your inspiration. Thanks, Marcus. That was a real treat to speak with Kerry O'Brien, who was very generous with his time. Kerry touched on the issue of ageism. Ageism is a global issue which touches all regions of the world and all communities. Many of us are pushing for greater protection of the rights of older people to combat ageism. If you'd like to know more about this campaign, please check out the work of GARIP, which is the Global Alliance for the Rights of Older People. Go to their website, which is simply therightsofolderpeople.org, therightsofolderpeople, as one word, .org, or go to the Booming website and follow the links. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more Booming content, please go to our website, booming.net.au that's booming.net.au and connect with us at the Booming Facebook page and Instagram. Email us at info at booming.net.au We'd love you to tell us topics that you want to hear about, questions you may have about ageing and this concept of longevity and of course your own stories. Please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and do tell people about this booming movement so we can really foster a booming community and have more people ageing successfully. Thanks for listening and happy booming.